Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday morning. First Sunday morning of the new season. The season that gives proof to the saying that everything old is new again. Three popular music legends, Bruce, Paul, and Ringo, are in the spotlight yet again. And this morning, they'll be looking back and ahead with our Anthony Mason. On his latest tour, Bruce Springsteen was playing four hours a night. How do you keep doing that? Don't try it at home, kids. <laughs> you tell but it was the Beatles who invented arena rock. The noise was was constant. Yeah. It was just like, she loved ah! It was like, hey, whoa! <laughs> Later on Sunday morning, we go back to Abbey Road with Paul and Ringo and to the streets of Jersey with Bruce. My aunt's house was there. Good luck, we say, when someone begins a brand new venture. But can we, through our words or deeds, actually improve our luck? With this year's Emmy Awards just hours away, that's a question for our Susan Spencer. Look around you. Roughly seven out of 10 Americans say they've had mostly good luck in their lives. So what's their secret? There are things that you can do to increase your luck and increase your chances. But that implies that we have control over luck. Exactly. So that's... You think we do? I think we do, absolutely. This is good news. Yeah. <laughs> good luck later on Sunday morning. It's the new season in just about every creative field. David Edelstein will have our fall movie preview, while Ben Tracy has been surveying the world of art. Leaves aren't the only things changing this season. From coast to coast, museums around the country are preparing their fall seasons, making way for new exhibits and hopefully new visitors. We'll take a bite out of some of the best art in the country ahead on Sunday morning. Connor Knighton's on the trail to another one of our great national parks this morning. This time, he has some very special traveling companions. This is Cupcake. Oh, hey, Cupcake. Oh, <laughs> it hurts, it hurts so much. <laughs> These adorable little guys and girls were born in July at Denali National Park. We always joke that they're the happiest government employees you'll ever meet, but it's really, really <laughs> true. true. Ahead on Sunday morning, take a deep breath and say, Oh. Lee Cowan visits the Big Easy with Scott Bakula of NCIS New Orleans. Mo Rocca talks with Sunday morning makeup artist Ricky Johnson about her lifelong brush with fame. Steve Hartman mourns the passing of a 600-year-old tree. Next, luck itself is beating the odds. You have a power over your destiny. It's your lucky day. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Many of us have our own good luck charms and rituals, but do they really make any difference? Can we really make our own luck? Our cover story is reported by Susan Spencer. Whether you're hitting the slots in Vegas, running for president. Thank you, everyone. God bless you. Thank you. Or hoping to hear your name called out at tonight's Emmy Awards, you probably could use a little luck. They call you Lady Luck. As Emmy hosts like Neil Patrick Harris know so well. Luck be a lady tonight. Luck itself is beating the odds. You have a power over your destiny. If you really feel lucky, then... Mathematician Joseph Mazur harnesses his luck by writing about it. He says there's a reason why people have believed in luck since the caveman days. It helps us cope with life's uncertainties. We know the present, we know the past, but that future is really... We want to be sure that we have it all under control. Many people have some lucky charm, like a rabbit's foot. 
or whatever else gives them that elusive feeling of control. One in three Americans believes that finding a penny brings good luck. One in five knocks on wood to ward off bad luck. And about that same number avoids walking under ladders. Is this nuts? There are things that you can do to increase your luck and increase your chances. But that implies that we have control over luck. Exactly. So that's, You think we do? I think we do, absolutely. This is good news. Yes. <laughs> Unlike the superstitious masses, writer Carla Starr claims to have luck down to a science, even naming her blog, The Science of Luck. You think you're lucky? Yes, absolutely. It's all luck, exactly, that's all luck. It's that upbeat attitude that makes lucky people lucky, she says. Think positive and things will turn out that way. There's a lot of research showing that optimistic people do make their own luck because they have a higher self-esteem, and so they're more likely to persist after failure. Take actor John Hamm, who seemed to credit luck when he won an Emmy last year. There has been a uh, terrible mistake, clearly. Before he landed his starring role on Mad Men, Hamm had been acting in relative obscurity for more than a decade. He simply kept at it. All it takes is that one audition. So this is the science of luck? If we're lucky, it will end up being a little piece of it, perhaps. For University of Pennsylvania professor Michael Kearns, this is what luck really looks like. This is basically a curve representing um, kind of a representation of your payoff as a function of a probability of event. He writes algorithms designed to control luck in investing. Many people on Wall Street take a pretty scientific approach to thinking about luck and to shaping their luck. Along with teaching, Kearns works for a hedge fund, coming up with luck-shaping formulas, combining a stock's history with the client's appetite for risk. I'm going to compute what the optimal portfolio or mixture of stocks would have been to maximize your payoff. To make me lucky. That's right, exactly. <laughs> But the science of luck goes out the window when it comes to other get-rich-quick schemes we love. Take the lottery. No, on second thought, don't. Your expected payoff is negative, right? You expect to lose your money. You've never bought a lottery ticket? I have never bought a lottery ticket. Come um, on, I everybody. Never, I have never bought a lottery Not ticket. Not one lottery Not ticket. Not one lottery ticket. Yeah. I mean, people... You don't like lotteries much um, as an investment strategy. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so by now you're probably feeling pretty lucky. With the right algorithm and a little optimism, you too can be rich and happy, right? Not so fast. At your local bookstore, you may find an entirely different story, like the one behind this award-winning novel. There's a book called Fieldwork. It did okay, it didn't do very well. Until it got an astonishingly lucky break. Stephen King walks into a bookstore. The Stephen King. The Stephen King. Mm -hmm. He picks up this copy of a thing called Fieldwork. He goes home, reads it. He thinks it's wonderful. And he writes for Entertainment Weekly. And he said, this is essentially, he's saying, this is a great American novel. And that's probably all it took. He was a finalist for the National Book Award. Talk about luck. Yeah. In other words, luck is not something we control. Stuff just happens. The world, in some sense, is just intrinsically random. Somebody came up with this idea. Sociologist Duncan Watts, a principal researcher at Microsoft, says success is mostly arbitrary. So the Mona Lisa is probably my favorite example of the role of luck in success. It's probably uh, the most famous painting in the world and the most famous painting in history. And yet, if you're like me and millions of other people and you went to the Louvre and you finally saw the Mona Lisa, you might have been just a little bit disappointed. You sort of look at this painting and you think, really? That's what <laughs> all the fuss is about? The fuss all began with a series of chance occurrences. The Mona Lisa really only started to get famous in the last century. It sort of sat in, uh, you know, in, in palaces of kings for you know, a couple of hundred years. So right? what changed? This young uh, Italian uh, who was working at the Louvre was apparently disgruntled that this you know, masterpiece that rightfully belonged in Italy was sitting in France, and so he stole it. 
it sort of became this kind of media fiasco and really drew a lot of attention to this painting. You're saying that absent that, it might never have become famous? I, I suspect that absent that, it would never have become famous. So the Mona Lisa got lucky. So the Mona Lisa got lucky. <laughs> but what about the actual painting? Was Leonardo onto something? Or is the Mona Lisa's fame just blind luck? I could do a painting and, you know, no matter how much hype it got, it's unlikely it would be put in the same category with the Mona Lisa. It's not that the things that succeed don't have to be good in some sense. It's that, that there are many things that are equally good and could equally have been as successful. And we've never heard of any of those things. So if you could rewind the world and let luck play out again, Watts says there might not be a Mona Lisa or a Bob Dylan or Harry Potter, all of whom benefited from being at the right place at the right time. There's some little random accident that happens early on and then that builds on itself and that builds on itself. And then many years later, we have this huge effect that we are unable to explain except by saying this thing is unique and special. Do you think you're lucky? Oh, absolutely. Our CBS News poll found seven out of 10 Americans feel the same way. They are mostly lucky. And as luck would have it, that includes everyone we interviewed. What about you? I do think I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. You consider yourself lucky? I do. <laughs> <laughs> Some things are just luck. Many, many things are just luck. Coming up... What a dump. We remember playwright Edward Albee. Are the characters that you use usually representations of people, of real people that you've met? I think it's always a combination of things. A combination of people you've seen uh, yourself and stuff you invent. It happened this past Friday, the passing of playwright Edward Albee, who died at his home in Montauk, New York. Estranged from his wealthy adoptive parents and expelled from college, young Albee struggled to become a writer while working odd jobs in Greenwich Village. His one-act play, The Zoo Story, won him notice in 1960. But it was his Tony Award-winning 1962 play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, that rocketed him to fame. His portrayal of a bitterly feuding college professor and his wife what a dump. was brought to the screen in 1966. Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor in the starring roles. So here I am, stuck with this, flop this on, bog in the history department, Martha. who's married to the Don't president's Martha. daughter, All who's right. expected right. to be who's somebody, not just Virginia a nobody, a The winner of three Pulitzer Prizes and three Tony Awards, Edward Albee was as outspoken in real life as his characters were on stage. He once said, if Attila the Hun were alive today, he would be a drama critic. Edward Albee was 88 years old. Today and in weeks to come, we're previewing the new season. To begin, our Ben Tracy is seeing what's up in the world of art. If you've ever left your heart in San Francisco, the city's just reopened Museum of Modern Art might provide a very good reason to come back. It's been closed for three years while undergoing a $300 million renovation. It cost a lot, but now it's a lot bigger, nearly three times bigger. We're one of the largest museums in the country and at the moment the largest museum in terms of gallery square footage of any modern museum in the country. Neil Benezra is the museum's director. I, I've, I've not met a museum director yet who didn't want to have a bigger building. <laughs> you know, a bigger building allows you to create more programs, more education opportunities, welcome more visitors, and of course show more art. Which means the museum can now dedicate its bigger galleries to big name artists such as Ellsworth Kelly, Chuck Close, Frank Stella, Roy Lichtenstein, and Andy Warhol. Rest assured, Elvis has not left the building. But if you can't make it here to San Francisco, don't worry. There's plenty of art to see across the country. Three states over in Colorado, 
The Denver Art Museum explores Japanese fashion design in its latest exhibit, Shockwave. And at the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, Monet, the early years. On the East Coast, the Philadelphia Museum of Art looks south with Paint the Revolution, Mexican Modernism. And then there's New York City, where two highly anticipated exhibits open this weekend. At the Whitney, a retrospective of works from 101-year-old abstract artist Carmen Herrera. Uptown at the Guggenheim, the art is more, well, interactive. An 18-carat golden toilet. And yes, you can use it. It's artist Maurizio Catalan's commentary on economic disparity, but also our common humanity. It's perhaps one toilet truly worthy of being called a throne. Give me an excuse. Coming up. You've been doing TV a long, long time. Does it, decades. Does it ever actor like Scott Bakula. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. New season on TV means a brand new season of NCIS New Orleans, debuting Tuesday night here on CBS. Lee Cowan has gone to the show's namesake city for a visit with its leading man, Scott Bakula. In New Orleans recently, on a mercifully not-so-hot day, actor Scott Bakula was basking in the Big Easy where residents have welcomed him and the cast of NCIS New Orleans with open arms. There's no place where you, I've ever been where people are constantly, constantly saying, how do you like my city? Yeah. How do you like in New Orleans? How do you like in the city? How do you like the food? The city itself is as big a character as the special agent Bakula plays. Easy. Put the gun down. Considering Katrina and the subsequent years and the rebuilding, I think you feel like, yeah, you want to, everybody's, everybody's rooting for New Orleans. And we're no different. Oh, boy. He has hopped around a lot in his professional life. In the late 80s, he made a career out of it as the time-traveling Sam Beckett in Quantum Leap. Anyway, here I am, bouncing around in time, putting things right that once went wrong, a sort of time-traveling Lone Ranger with Al as my tanto. It made him a household name and launched him on a television career that had him playing all sorts of roles, from the captain of the Starship Enterprise. Can I be of help, Captain? Do you need a tow? We still have weapons. You're not gonna get this ship without one hell of a fight. To the scud stud on Murphy Brown. I brought you a little souvenir from the Medellin airport. My Spanish isn't what it used to be, but I think it's either a dried apricot or a human ear. <laughs> Neat, huh? But Bakula never really relished the idea of being TV famous. You keep your private life very yeah. private. Yeah. For a hundred million years, uh, People Magazine wanted to do interviews with me at my home. And I said, I, I, can't, I, I can't. Where do you stop? That's why we met him near his home, at Gracias Madre, a popular Mexican restaurant in Los Angeles. He's 61 now and commutes home from New Orleans every weekend to spend time with his second wife, actress Chelsea Field, and his four children. You're somebody who is so well known, and yet you're not known for your personal life. You're not known for being in the tabloids. You're known purely for your work and a lot of it. Yeah. Which is kind of remarkable these That's days. what's wrong with my career, <laughs> actually. That's, you summed it up in one, in one sentence. If it all sounds a bit non-Hollywood, maybe that's because Scott Bakula didn't grow up in Hollywood. He was born in the Midwest, St. Louis to be exact. My dad was a you know, hardworking guy. My mom raised three kids, and, and we grew up kind of insulated. It was at his Presbyterian church where the acting bug bit, especially musicals. He liked singing so much, he dropped out of college, where he was planning to be a lawyer, and headed for the bright lights of Broadway. Fingers crossed. I went to New York to be an actor and hoped that I could, you know, do stage work and be on Broadway and do musicals. I just had to, I had to go to New York and see if I could make it. And make it he did, eventually landing the lead role in the musical Romance, Romance. 
a performance that earned Bakula a Tony nomination. Monday evening, the band played a polka, a new lively polka with a military element. But then, a funny thing happened. Bakula bailed on Broadway and headed west. People are like, what are you doing? You're, you know, you're starring in a Broadway show, and you're six months into the run, and you got a Tony nomination, and you're going to go back to L.A. Why? Why? To see if his musical chops on stage could get him noticed by Hollywood, even if that process is a little odd. Nobody in L.A. goes to see the theater, but if they hear that you're good, then that's enough. <laughs> is that true? So, it maybe has changed, but I can't tell you that. So, oh my gosh, you, you saw the show? No, but we heard it was great. <laughs> The word of mouth spread. What musicals exactly had to do with sci-fi shows like Star Trek or Quantum Leap is anybody's guess, but Bakula rose to the occasion and even found a way to squeeze in a little music when he could. Imagine there's no heaven. Yes, he not only sings, he plays too, especially the piano. I'm not as good as I'd like to be. But you still play quite a bit though. I do, but I'm, I'm a hack. Uh, you know, especially in New Orleans. <laughs> a hack, hardly. See if I remember. Take care of the children, children of the world. They're the strongest hope for the future, little bitty boys and girls. He's good enough that even in the middle of a police procedural, the writers have made room for Bacula to play. Makes the show a little different, a little unique, a little special, and, uh, make the world a better place. Being on a show with some 15 million viewers and being immersed in the New Orleans music scene is for Bakula the best of both worlds. I'm overwhelmed by not just being here, but in the history of the music, but the number of good players that are in the city. He took us to the New Orleans Jazz Museum, where a piano used by legendary jazz and blues artist Dr. John is on display, which holds a special significance. I've been in the right place, yeah. time. Dr. John actually dropped by as a guest on NCIS New Orleans a while back, a perk that Bakula says he probably wouldn't get in any other city. And he plays crazy, and he's telling you a story about getting his finger shot off, so that affected his playing for a while. <laughs> Music remains the single note resonates through a career that has gone in every which direction. Whether he's a special agent, a friend of Liberace's, or just a man of a certain age, Scott Bakula has become a familiar face in the sea of faces that he's had the opportunity to play. I've tried to do different things, and I think that that's kind of kept me alive and vital. So is that the secret, you think, of your longevity, is just to keep trying to reinvent yourself? Maybe, maybe. For however I present myself, I guess, and people's perception of me, I don't seem to be stuck in, in any kind of a, a creative rut. So, and I'm, and I'm grateful for that, people that give me the chance to do that. Next, on tour with the Beatles. And later. Home was right up here. Yeah. It is now a parking lot. <laughs> Looking back with Bruce Springsteen. Church was right next door and school was right next door. My house was here, church was there. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. Tomorrow I'll miss you. Remember I'll always be true. All My Loving was a hit for the Beatles way back in 1963. Now with the release of a new documentary film about the band's touring days, Anthony Mason sat down with the two surviving Beatles with some questions and answers. Ladies and gentlemen, here are the Beatles! The Beatles' ascent was like a space shot. And when Ringo Starr joined John Lennon, Paul McCartney and George Harrison in 1962, all the astronauts were aboard. When Ringo joined, then it was like a, a real rocket ship. Then it was like, whoa, wait a minute, we've, we've, this is it. 
It became a band then. We captured Liverpool, London, and we were out to capture the world. The new documentary, Eight Days a Week, The Touring Years, follows the Beatles on the road from 1963 to 66 in their heady climb into the pop culture heavens. sort of them before the real craziness started and they were just an unbelievably tight band. Ron Howard, brought in to direct the film, says many of the performances include newly restored footage. This is, this is Candlestick Park? Candlestick Park, it's their last live appearance. And newly discovered film. There was actually no official footage of Candlestick. No, no, that footage was found under a, 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 a lady's bed, most of it. This, this lady uh, called in uh, and, and basically said, you know, I went to the to Candlestick and, and I, I took some, some movies. I, I never developed them. Do you guys want to look? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love it being under her bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize she'd never looked at it. Yeah, she never had it. That's, never great. Even I thought That's it, great. Yeah. It's like, you know, oh. Who's this? I mean, Picasso? Yeah. <laughs> we talked with Howard and the two surviving Beatles, Paul and Ringo, this past week at Abbey Road Studios in London, where the Beatles used to make pit stops between tour dates to record with producer George Martin. We'd come in here, and it was only me and John knew what we were going to do that day, because we'd just written it. George Martin had come down from the sort of grown-ups box and he'd come down and he'd sort of say, what are we gonna do, chaps? So we go, okay, if there's anything that you want or whatever it was, you know. And in the next one and a half hours, we'd make that song. What do you feel when you hear the Beatles sing? Oh, I feel like I'm gonna drop dead. <laughs> Beauty, sheer beauty. You tell I think and I can't see. You can't As Beatlemania built, the flood of fans forced them to invent arena rock. And then when we end up at Shea, because that is the biggest thing we'd ever done, it was like far out. It was like what? Same old thing At New York's Shea Stadium in August of 1965, they played before 56,000 fans. When you started playing stadiums, arenas, did you plan for that in any way? No, not really. I don't we think we planned plan for that. anything, you know. We just went on with what we had. They had only two roadies, one of them, Mal Evans. All our equipment had to be big enough so Mal could carry it. The noise was, was constant. Yeah. It, it never abates. No. I mean, at first, that screaming was great because it meant we were a success. It was just like, she loved, ah! And it was like, hey, whoa! And after a while, it was like, I can't hear you. Wait a minute, you know. But it had become part of it. Yeah. It was like, that's what happens when we go on stage, this is what happens. Yeah. And but, we did diminish a little as musicians. Though it sounds good. <laughs> but why does it sound good? How could it sound that good when you couldn't hear yourselves? We you, played our best no matter what. Was, and I couldn't yeah. hear them. You I, couldn't hear I, them? I was playing you know, to his foot tapping, to John's bouncing, you know, and when they went. I couldn't <laughs> hear that. <laughs> I just saw the head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the woo! You knew it was time for the I knew, yeah, we're going to do the bill. <laughs> Sing the song, go, boys, ring now! And the thing is, though, because we put in so many hours as kids, mm. we instinctively knew what to do as a band. We were making a pretty good noise most of the time, not always. On their first trip into the American South, the Beatles unwittingly waded into dangerous political waters. 
before a concert at the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, Florida, the band was told the audience would be segregated. How did that get brought up to you at the time? Brian would have mentioned it. Brian would have just, Brian, our, our manager, would have just said, oh, you know, and this show is segregated. What? There'll be black people over here and there'll be white people over here. And we went, no. we, we, we played. He's joking, you know. What do you mean? Mm -hmm. You know, we're from Liverpool. We played black, white, all the bands. We just played together, you know. And we actually put in the contract. It wasn't a big political gesture. It was just the instinct. Right. But, you know, why, well, why shouldn't black and white people be so together? So nobody raised We the, didn't understand it. Nobody raised the political, no, potential political No, it wasn't political to us. Right. It was just like, <laughs> no, mm -hmm. yeah. we're not doing it. The Gator Bowl relented, and the audience was integrated. But the crowds and the commotion around their appearances grew. Was there a specific point you remember when you, you really started getting tired of it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt, personally, I was not playing the best I could mm -hmm. because I just had to, like, stay in that song. It came to uh, the final concert in Candlestick Park. We were all getting a bit fed up, but I was still resisting. Oh, you know, it's, yeah. it's good. You know, we ought to keep going. And then we got put in this van, which was, like, chrome interior, and we are just sliding around in there, and then we all looked at each other, and I said, well, you're right. Yeah. This is it. Mm -hmm. Forget it. This is just stupid. The conditions were brutal. Okay, ready. After that concert in August 1966, the Beatles retreated to the studio. That November at Abbey Road, they began recording Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. They never toured again. Three years later, they broke up. By the end, it became quite complicated, McCartney says in the film. But at the beginning, things were really simple. That was the thing about the Beatles. We were a great little band. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really. Oh, what a fall it's going to be. Clown comedy, apocalyptic horror, and that's just the election. I have more confidence in the movies, though I gotta say, I haven't seen them yet, so I reserve the right to get you excited now and down the road say, never mind. You a child of God, you got purpose. The movie everyone's talking about is Birth of a Nation, not D.W. Griffith's pro-clan epic. You listen to him, and you might just make it into heaven. Amen. But the one directed by Nate Parker, who stars as the slave Nat Turner. He doesn't suffer passively, like the hero of 12 Years a Slave. He becomes a bloody revolutionary, a terrorist. His cause righteous, but is killing barbaric. As if that weren't controversial enough, Parker has been forced to search his soul publicly over a sexual assault charge dating from college days. A court cleared him, but the studio is worried about the court of Oscar voters. Speaking of controversy... Private Doss does not believe in violence. Do not look to him to save you on the battlefield. There's a new movie from Mel Gibson. Say what you will about Mad Mel, and if you're me, you could say plenty. He is a sensational filmmaker, and the response to Hacksaw Ridge at the Venice Film Festival was ecstatic. It's a great subject for Gibson, who always looks like he's ready to pick up a gun and start blasting. Sorry, Sergeant, I can't touch a gun. The true story of a conscientious objector who refused to kill or even carry a weapon but served in World War II and saved lives. Help me get one more. There's fantastic buzz on the sci-fi invasion thriller Arrival. Now that's a proper introduction. The hero isn't a he-man, but a female linguist played by Amy Adams, who strives to learn the alien's language to avert war. What, they can't speak English? They're not welcome in this country. What happened to my brother? The word is also amazing on Manchester by the Sea, directed by Kenneth Lonergan, one of America's best living playwrights, in which Casey Affleck plays a Boston janitor who becomes the guardian of his dead brother's 15-year-old son. I'm gonna just sit here until you calm down. All right, I'm calming now. 
Would you please just go away? No. Well, that takes us through the holidays, which are also jammed with great-looking movies that I hope to love, but reserve the right to say are terrible. People thought it's always going to be here, but apparently it's not. Standing the test of time, next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A long-standing witness to America's history will soon be no more. Steve Hartman has been to a town filled with mourners. At the Basking Ridge Presbyterian Church in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, they don't need stained glass to make their windows breathtaking. It was built in 1717. Parishioner John Klippel says for the entire 300-year history of this church, one of the most magnificent oak trees known to man has been filling the panes here. The church was intentionally built beside the tree, and the town grew up around the church. Everybody that's ever lived here has recognized that tree is sort of a symbol of home. George Washington walked past it. Some of his soldiers are buried under it. The tree predates America, Columbus. Pretty much everything we know came after this 600-year-old oak. But now our matriarch is fading. After decades of leaning on cables and crutches, experts say the oldest white oak tree in North America is on its last limbs. Local residents can't believe it. It just kind of feels like a part of the town is kind of dying with it. Yeah, no one thought about the tree dying. You know, it was one of those things that was going to go on forever. That's what a lot of people thought it's always going to be here. But apparently it's not. For the folks of Basking Ridge, it is very much a grieving process. Loss or the anticipation of loss, I think it's traumatic. I think people have to go through their own steps of reconciliation with it. For centuries, the tree has been an ever-present metaphor for preachers at this pulpit. Whether the lesson was perseverance or patience, creation or resurrection, the tree helped teach it all. And soon will come its final lesson. Maybe a sermon about the cycle of life. Or maybe they'll just take a minute to stare out the window one last time at the finest stained glass picture God ever created. Bruce Springsteen, still on the run. It's the new season on Sunday morning, and here again is Charles Osgood. Songs such as Glory Days have made him a musical legend. Bruce Springsteen has been singing about his own life and times for some 40 years. Now at last, he's written about it as well. Here once again is our music man, Anthony Mason. In the final dates of his international tour that ended this past week, oh, that's right. Bruce Springsteen played one four-hour gig after another. How do you keep doing that? I'm conditioned to do it from many, many years of experience. Don't try it at home, kids. <laughs> it's the one arena where the singer, who turns 67 this week, can control the clock. You're looking for a particular moment, and then when you catch that, it feels so good sometimes, then time disappears. a little physically tired, though it's amazing how you can do it every night when you're, when you're called to. We met on the singer's New Jersey farm recently at the recording studio he built there. Where do you think your drive comes from? I believe every artist had someone who told them that they weren't worth dirt and someone who told them that were, they were the second coming of the baby Jesus 
and they believed them both. And that's, that's the fuel that stirs the fire. <laughs> For Springsteen, the fire started in Freehold, New Jersey. Give me the geography. Where was home? Home was right up here. Yeah. On the block around the St. Rose of Lima Catholic Church. My house was here. Church was there. My aunt's house was there. Uh -huh. My other aunt's house is right next to her. Uh -huh. The grinding, hypnotic power of this ruined place would never leave me, he writes in Born to Run, his new autobiography published by Simon & Schuster, a division of CBS. Doug and Adele Springsteen's son found both comfort and fear here. His mother, a legal secretary, rented him his first guitar. His father, who worked at Ford, was an angry man. He loved me, Springsteen writes, but couldn't stand me. <laughs> My feelings exactly. We made a surprise visit to the school at St. Rose of Lima. I'm getting the willies. Go, my friend. He's beloved here now. We look great. <laughs> it was different when he was in class. How did you do when you were here? Uh, not particularly well, you know. I was, uh, I didn't fit in the box so well. Did I read that they called you springy? Yes, that is correct, my friend. <laughs> Amongst many other things. Long after he moved away, Springsteen would drive back at times to Freehold. I may still cruise through every once in a while. <laughs> what are you looking for when you do? Uh, well, they say... <laughs> they say you're looking to make things all right again, you know? And, of course, there's no going back, you know? The long-haired guitar slinger who earned his stripes in the bars of Asbury Park was just 22 when he was signed to Columbia Records. His first two albums did not sell well. So he poured his soul into a new song called Born to Run. You were reaching for something epic. Well, I was trying to make the greatest record you'd ever heard. record that after you heard it, you didn't have to hear another record, Born to Run launched Bruce Springsteen. The album's now iconic cover also featured sax player Clarence Clemens, Bruce's mythic sidekick, the big man's imposing presence came to symbolize the brotherhood of the E Street Band. How would you describe your relationship with Clarence? It was uh, very primal, you know. It was just, mm, you're, you're some missing part of me. You're mm -hmm. some dream I'm having. He was such this huge force, you mm -hmm. know while at the same time being very fragile and very dependent himself, which is maybe what the two of us had in common. We were both kind of insecure down inside, and we both felt kind of fragile and sure of ourselves. But when we were together, we felt really powerful. We're very different people. Yeah. You know, uh, Clarence lived fast and loose and wild and wide open, you know? Yeah. I tended to be a little more conservative. You said offstage you, you couldn't be friends. I said, I, no, I couldn't, I couldn't be, it would ruin my life. I said, <laughs> 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 yeah. but Clarence could be Clarence excellently. <laughs> he was very good at it. Until his health began a long decline. In 2011, Clemens suffered a stroke and died days later. Losing Clarence, Springsteen writes, was like losing the rain. And it happened very quick and suddenly and it was quite devastating. I mean, when something like that, that, that as you say, kind of came magically to begin with, yeah. goes away, I mean, right. you've got to be sitting there going, how do I replace this? There's no replacing Clarence. You know, you're going to do something else. <laughs> Clarence had mentioned he had a sax-playing nephew, Jake Clemens. 
Springsteen turned to him to resolve the band's identity crisis. When you saw this was finally working, was it a relief? Oh yeah, you kidding? <laughs> it was like it was like the weight of the world was off my shoulders, you uh -huh. know. Said, but Springsteen faced an even greater challenge as he entered his 60s a crippling attack of depression that he'd battle with the help of his wife and E Street band member, Patty Scialfa. It lasted for a long time. My 60s would last for a year, and then it would slip away, then it would come back for a year and a half. Do you see it coming? Do you feel it coming? Mm, not really, you know. It sneaks up on you. It's like this thing that engulfs you. I got to where I didn't want to get out of bed, you know, and... and and you're not behaving very well at home, and you're tough on everybody, hopefully not the kids. I just try to hide it from the kids, but, you know, Patty really had to work with me through it, and mm -hmm. she was, her strength and, and love she had was uh, very important, you know, as far as guiding me through it. She said, well, you're going to be okay. Maybe not today <laughs> or tomorrow, but it's going to be all right. I mean, you still function with it. Yeah, the, my, my thing is, for some reason, it never affected my work or any of my playing. You know, it yeah. was something, if I was dead down, when I came in the studio, I could work. Springsteen, who wrote about it in the song This Depression, finally got through it with therapy and medication. This is my His late father also suffered from mental illness, and much of Springsteen's book is an attempt to write a new ending to their relationship. Yeah, my dad was very important in it because I felt I hadn't been completely fair to him in my music. How did you feel that you were unfair in your music? Yeah. I think that I'd left a, an image of him as sort of this very domineering uh, character, which he could be at different times, and yeah. he could be frightening. But he was also much, much more. He had a much more complicated life. He describes an unannounced visit his father made to see him just days before the first of his three children was born. What did he say to you? That Oh, <laughs> you're going to get me now, man. Uh, he showed up at my door, and he came in, and uh, we had a couple of beers. It was early in the morning, and uh, I think he said, yeah, you know, you've been really good to us. I said, yeah. I said, I wasn't so good to you. And I said, yeah, well, you did the best you could, you know. And uh, that was it. That was, that was the only recognition I needed of our history. You know, it was a little was, thing, but it was everything? It was, it was a small thing, but it was everything. It, was, uh, it changed our relationship immediately. It was just a lovely gift. You know? It was a lovely uh, epilogue to our relationship, you know, mm -hmm. it really was. The relationship Bruce Springsteen has with his fans is deep and enduring. I'm still uh, in love with playing, and, and my attitude at this point in my life is this is what I love to do. I want to do as much of it as I can. Thank you, Philly! Again and again on this tour. He played his longest shows ever in the U.S. Around four hours every night. You could play for just two and a half hours, you know? I suppose I could. <laughs> nah. <laughs> Coming up? A dog's life. This is Mackie, a Siberian Husky puppy who just may grow up to become a sled dog someday. Same line of work pursued by the dogs that Connor Knighton met at Denali National Park in Alaska. This is Cupcake. Oh, hey, Cupcake. Oh, <laughs> it hurts, it hurts so much. If you're anything like me, you're gonna need a minute here. It's okay. Take your time, get it out of your system. Take a deep breath and say, Aw, more 
puppies. I want all the puppies. <laughs> These adorable little guys and girls, five of them total, were born in July at Denali National Park. Cupcake, Happy, Party, Pinata, and Hundo were named in honor of the 100th anniversary of the park service. Denali, formerly Mount McKinley, turns 100 next year. And these pups are just the latest additions to a legacy of Alaskan sled dogs as old as the park itself. Denali's first superintendent was a veteran dog musher named Harry Karstens, who used a team of sled dogs to patrol the backcountry looking for poachers. As the park grew, it needed the supply of well-trained dogs. Karstens established the first and only working kennel in a national park. We always joke that they're the happiest government employees you'll ever meet, but it's really, really <laughs> true. true. That the yard stays always between 30 and 35 dogs. Um, so Jennifer Raffaelli is the current kennels manager at Denali. Hi, handsome. Looking after this stable of canine rangers. And while a dog team may seem like a throwback to another era, they're very much in use today. And the really amazing thing about dog teams in Alaska is that sometimes they still prove to be the most reliable and effective means of transportation in really challenging winter conditions. You know, if you're out at 50 below and you try and start up a snow machine, it may or may not start. At 50 below, I go out and say good morning, these guys all jump Selfies up and they're up ready and to go. <laughs> in the frigid winter months, these dogs each run well over a thousand miles, shuttling supplies and creating trails. They come with a built-in GPS. Navigationally, do they help you at all? Oh, incredibly so. I mean, these dogs have brains and hearts and memories better than most rangers. Perhaps most importantly, they do all of this quietly. In 1980, two million acres of Denali were designated as federally protected wilderness. That means no forms of mechanized transport allowed. These dogs were bred to sled. During summer presentations, they show off their skills around the kennel track. As soon as people see the dogs want to run and pull a sled, that's the highlight of every program for them. All summer long, the canine rangers get to meet their adoring public. Volunteer walkers help them stay in shape. And the staff take small groups out to play. Let's go! Eventually, after nine years or so of service, it's time for retirement. The park matches the dogs with active owners like the Winter family. We still go for our two-mile runs. That's pretty much a part of her routine. Aurora ran over 7,000 miles at Denali. Come on, Aurora! In her retirement, she's adopted a few new routines. Does that feel good? For those who can't bring an actual sled dog home with them, the park has a popular puppy cam. 24 hours a day, visitors can log on and see what the new gang is up to. Each one has his or her own fans. I may be partial to Pinata. You're a dog whisperer. You've got him pretty comfortable there. <laughs> but you know what they say. Kids grow up so fast. Before long, these dogs will join their relatives out on the trail, carrying gear and carrying on a tradition more than a century old. Can I use a little bit of makeup right now? <laughs> you look a little beardy, tell you the truth. Beardy? A little bit right here. Oh, Putting our best face forward. Next. There we are. That helps a little bit. Okay, thanks. Oh, yeah. Ricky Johnson of our Sunday morning family has had more FaceTime with familiar faces than anyone we know. Oraka can tell us all about her lifelong brush with fame. Now, the first thing we do is take off our glasses, remember? Yes. <laughs> it's Sunday morning on CBS. But before our beloved host, Charles Osgood, greets the millions of you out there, 
he spends time with this woman, makeup artist Ricky Johnson. Ricky's sort of the last person you're chatting with before you go on air? Yes, and we're chatting about any number of things. For over 20 years, our beloved Ricky has been making up Charlie. I'm guessing your rapport relaxes you with her? Absolutely. But Ricky's career with CBS long predates Sunday morning. Okay, all set. Among the other titans she's touched up? I'm Morley Safer. I'm Ed Bradley. I'm Harry Reasoner. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. And that pioneer of television news broadcasting? What was Edward R. Murrow like? He was very busy smoking and working and writing and not sociable. I mean, you know, to me. And after almost 65 years, yes, 65 years at work. Good. Thank you. You're welcome. Ricky Johnson is a master at reading the room. Most of the time we talk. We, we talk about, you know, what movie did you see or have you been to the theater or, you know, how's the family? So we do chat. But sometimes Charlie will come in and I can tell from the look on his face that something's going on and I don't say anything. Give him a chance to work it out. Oh, I see. Makeup may, in fact, be superficial, but its impact is deep. Richard Nixon's biggest mistake after Watergate? Probably his decision not to wear makeup in his presidential debate with John F. Kennedy, a decision which made him look sweaty and nervous. Makeup shows up in history books when it comes to that 1960 yes. election. Yes. Now, you made up Richard Nixon when? After he left office. I made him up twice, actually. He was very gracious and <laughs> certainly took makeup. <laughs> this time, yes. I'm accepting this time, makeup. Absolutely. Florence Riccobono began working in TV right around when TV began. An art school graduate and aspiring actress, Ricky, she got the nickname in college, got her start doing makeup on Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows and The Milton Berle Show. <laughs> and a show like that was watched by millions of people. Yes. Yes. So did you think, okay, I've got to get this right because mm. About a third of the country is going to be watching no, this. No, I really never thought about yeah. it. It was my job. I did the best I knew how to do. But I never really thought about the historical significance of right. it. It was just like something you did. <laughs> and she liked doing it so much that even after marrying and having seven children, she kept on working. Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali. And next to Bella Abzug? <laughs> right next to Marv Albert? She happens to be an A. Ricky keeps track of all the newsmakers she's made over in a spiral notebook. I can just go anywhere randomly. I'm on M, and I put my finger down, and there's John McEnroe, yeah. right above Margaret Mead and <laughs> Margaret Gary. Margaret Mead, yeah, she was she was lovely. Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle, yeah. The monkeys, the McGuire sisters, all of them. Yeah. Dudley Moore. Dudley Did you, Moore, you he have was to use funny. a booster seat. <laughs> and then there are those four guys from England. You know, the ones who in 1964 played the Ed Sullivan Show, where Ricky worked at the time. I heard all this din outside, and I looked out the window and I saw all these young people, and I talked to the doorman, and he said, oh, some group uh, from England. I said, wow, this looks serious. So I called home, and I said to my husband, I can get the children into a dress rehearsal. The children didn't want to come, so of course now they're very sorry about that. Ricky knew just what those pop-up starts needed to pop on TV during that now legendary broadcast. I used a little eyeliner and... And uh, why did you use eyeliner? Because it was black and white television. They were a music group. You want to see their eyes and you want to see their mouth, and that's what's, you know, important. I met Paul McCartney maybe eight years ago. And I told him who I was, and he said, oh, use pancake makeup and eyeliner. And when we asked you about the eyeliner, you said, it'll be fine. And it was. <laughs> it was. Over the decades, Ricky has drawn close to more than a few of her colleagues here. Friendships that mattered dearly after her husband, Jay, passed away in 1999 was devastated. I, I, I thought maybe I shouldn't go back to work. I didn't know how I could. And Mike Wallace came to the funeral home and Mike took me by the hands and he looked me in the eyes and he said, you're coming back to work. 
And I said, I don't know what I'm doing. He said, you are coming back to work. And so he gave me courage, you know. I really can't do this with my glasses on, can I? No. <laughs> it wouldn't be right to end this tribute without pointing out that Ricky Johnson, the woman who's made thousands of other people look good, looks pretty damn great herself. Are you ever going to retire? I don't know, Mo. I, I love what I do. I work with the top people in the industry, and um, they still like what I would do. So should I just sit here and read a book? <laughs>